Okay, welcome back. After a few weeks off podcasting, my guest is Hargreaves Lansdowne's Nathan Long, pensions expert and fellow cycling aficionado. In this episode, we talk a bit about politics and party conferences, possible changes to state pensions and to pension tax relief, and we take a look at decumulation strategies in the context of recent upheavals in equity and bond markets. There is also a brief visit into FCA world for discussion on the advice guidance boundary, on which Nathan explains some of the changes Hargreaves Lansdowne would like to see. For the record, I didn't ask you to do this podcast just because you were boring me on a bike ride. <laughs> Actually, hopefully diminishing disparity in our fitness. I was just basically trying to catch you on a hill at the time, I seem to remember, as you went cycling away from me, which is not something I'm accustomed to, I might point out. And You've got bigger problems than pensions if you're struggling to stay with me on the hills, I think, Tom. <laughs> It's a work in progress. I was quite jealous of you going to both the party conferences. I mean, I know it's a weird thing, and I'm aware that going to party conferences is just stepping into a parallel universe, and it's tiring, and uh, you're away from your family for a couple of days. But this year, more than many years, I guess it was pretty interesting to go to first the Labour conference and then the Conservative conference. And I was struck when we when we were out for that bike ride when I was trying to keep up with you, when you made the observation that Labour felt like a party, kind of ready for power, more, which is certainly something I'd not seen on some of the Labour conferences I've been to in the last few years. Yeah, I mean... Well, there's no doubt. It was a very, I guess, slick, sort of polished performance at Labour, actually. Lots of consistency and messaging, which wasn't necessarily coming through uh, at the Tory conference. <laughs> yeah, and like the Conservatives. Yeah. Yeah. And, and certainly on some of the issues around financial services, talking about sort of the need for sort of a strong, uh, consistent, unwavering approach to kind of give confidence for, to businesses in sort of taking forward, you know, some of the, I guess some of the investments sort of deliver financial services. So it's, yeah, it was, it was quite interesting. I think I, I left the Labour conference and thought to myself, crikey, I, I can't wait to see just quite what's going to go on at the Tory conference. Cause at that point you'd had the, obviously the mini budget and yeah. the, some of the fallout from that. So yeah, very interesting. I mean, I have to say the, some of the, the policy debate at the Tory conference was really interesting. Lots on, kind of AI and and the ability to kind of use technology moving forward and some of the regulation that gets in the way, both from financial services perspective and others. So it was interesting, but I guess you're against, in this backdop of the sort of U-turn on the 45p rate of tax all going on in the background, it was, yeah, moments of pandemonium within it, I think. Pretty crazy. And the Labour conference, you, you've met Matt Rodder, the, the Labour Party pension spokesman, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Because I've, I've not met him, I've not spoken to him, I was just kind of interested are we getting any kind of messaging coming out of labor about pensions policy stuff yet i actually don't think that we have that clarity right now so i think for me it's going to be really interesting what you get in the next sort of i guess 12 months mm. or so and start to see where that that policy takes there's an interesting report out by the fabian society which had a mm. number of recommendations around how Pensions may develop, so some bits and pieces around CDC, some bits and pieces around the future of auto-enrolment, and one sort of, I guess, lurking in the background, not as a recommendation, but the future of tax relief on on pensions was still kind of a, a thorny topic that hadn't been yet addressed. So there was that kind of that little 
Oh, okay, little, we'll, uh, dangling we'll, carrot in there. We'll, we'll come back to that one. The other thing that struck me was at around the time when all, all the kind of mini budget meltdown was was occurring. Andrew Griffith, the financial secretary to the Treasury, which is not by no means the most senior ministerial post in the Treasury, he was out and about, quite active, doing media interviews and sort of propping up the government's position and defending the government's position on, on various issues, which I thought was interesting. And he's not someone I'd come across. Well, there's all these new people, all these new names, because the other one was Alex Burkhardt, who uh, we think is the, uh, we're pretty sure is the new pensions minister. But if you look on the DWP website, it's still just a blank page when it comes to ministerial responsibility. So it's not been officially confirmed that he is the pensions minister, even though everyone seems to think that he is. But I'm, I'm kind of interested in how those ministerial responsibilities might shake down and how significant a role Alex Burkhart will have at the DWP. And in particular, the element of Guy Opperman's job, the financial inclusion bit, whether that might now migrate back to the Treasury, because it's certainly just the appearance to me was that you know Andrew Griffith is kind of into his stride a lot more than is the case over at the DWP at the moment. Yeah, I guess it's it's going to be interesting to sort of see how it all comes through. On the financial inclusion point, there's just also these interesting sort of sidecar savings trials which yes. obviously I think was sort of sat within DWP before in terms of their development so that's again again interesting just to see you know that's really just strike to the heart of financial inclusion we've kind of to a certain extent whether you agree with where auto enrollment is at the moment or not we have at least got a a mechanism to get people saving for the future whereas you know certain households still don't have sufficient yeah. cash save for a rainy day so I think it's yeah going to be really interesting to see exactly how much of that financial inclusion brief sort of carries forward. Yeah, that's interesting because the sidecar thing was certainly something Guy had championed and, and would, had spoken enthusiastically and positively about. And it felt as if that, had, you say, had become a, a DWP thing, even though we're actually talking about things that technically aren't pensions. So, yeah, I guess I guess they've got more important things to worry about at the moment, haven't they? Yeah, in terms of the that's right government decisions and this this may already have grown old by the time this podcast comes out in a day or so but there's been some chatter in the last few days about things like the triple lock and state pension age and whether the government's going to mess around with either of those and use those as a mechanism to help balance off some of these vast unfunded tax cuts that they've announced and you got any sense on either of those either the triple lock or the state pension age and whether we'll see a movement on that one not really i mean i guess the the interesting thing, I suppose, to a certain extent, is the is a state pension age because we've had a report go in. Mm. We know from someone who is now part of the government. Indeed, yeah. But in terms of what that what that might look like, so you know, I think that that's obviously a, a catalyst to look at that. But that's not going to be a quick no. change. It's not going to be a politically pleasant change because you you would imagine that that we're only going to be getting our state pensions later and later. So it's quite a thorny one to sort of deliver, I think. The other one, as you say, is the triple lock, which is, again, isn't exactly more palatable. And I, the thing for me is how you want to change the triple lock, because in the past, the triple bit of the triple lock, if you like, was the 2.5% mm. sort of floor in terms of the increase, but that doesn't look like it's going to be biting anytime soon. So you kind of then go, well, what, you know, what do we actually want in terms of reform there if you want to reduce the cost? Is it just sort of piecemeal we won't increase at quite the rate it should be this year, but it should apply then in the future. I'm not sure. It's for me a lot of with a lot of these policies, 
you kind of want that certainty of what it's going to be. And for a long time, the triple lock has probably looked as though it's starting to look maybe slightly unsustainable to keep kind of increasing at that rate. Now, what the right rate is, is probably unclear, but actually almost to what you want, if there is going to be a change, is to be a proper policy proposal around how that is changed for good. I think what you don't want is these knee-jerk reactions of, well, it's inflation or earnings or 2.5%, but only if the economic conditions prevail that we're prepared to pay that. Do you see what I mean? As long as inflation doesn't get too high or earnings doesn't get too high. So I think some sort of sustainability around that is probably important moving forward. Yeah, I'd question the importance of the predictability around it. I mean, with something like state pension age, yes, you need a bit of a run-up at that. And by the way, I did an interview with Ivan McKee, this member of the Scottish Parliament, last week, and we got onto the subject of Scottish state pensions in the event of independence. And it turns out the two things that caused my Twitter feed to really catch fire, I mean, it's still smoking now, <laughs> either state pension and who pays for them in the event of Scottish independence, about which people have very strong views, it turns out. <laughs> and um, Yeah. And the other one is WASPI, you know, if we go into the subject of women's state pension age and, and how that one was sold. So basically, state pensions get people angry if you muck around with them. I guess my point is with the state pension age, and indeed who pays for it, you do need a degree of forward-looking predictability. But with with the uprating, I mean, arguably, you can just do it on a year-by-year basis. You know, the government can just come along next year and say, we're going to do 5% this year, or we're going to do earnings this year. They can make it up as they go along. The triple lock in that sense is just is purely a political device, right? Yeah, I think so. I just, you know, from a Coming at this from a planning perspective, if you're trying to help clients plan for the future, I think if the increase isn't quite as generous, but you're kind of confident it's there, it's far better than having a position where you've got a lack of confidence because it's sort of scaled down on a year by year basis based on on the prevailing circumstances. Yeah, and if that persists over time, then you get this steady erosion of the value of it. I think, and you know, we head off into the weeds of pension credits and how you target money at the the pensioners who still live in poverty today and that is a problem that was the whole reason steve webb introduced the triple lock it was Mm -hmm. because of pension and poverty that was 12 years ago now and a lot has improved since then but there are still these these areas of of pension and poverty that still need fixing yeah exactly and i guess this is the issue right because you don't want the triple lock to exist to get it back to a level where the state pension should be that's not what it's there for it should be a mechanism that gives pensioners confidence that their pension is going to keep up to either earnings or inflation or a combination of the two and it at least gives you that kind of that clear position i mean there's an argument that you kind of go for something and this is kind of for discussion but you know some sort of hybrid between inflation and earnings because then what you you're absolutely certain of is that your your income increases at least in line with inflation but if earnings are higher it, it sort of captures some of that increase as well but again i think the importance here is the sustainability of that yeah. increase and getting that on the right footing because otherwise what i think is probably widely seen as a generous pension benefit the triple lock stays in place for a reason which it's not really meant for which is to kind of get it up to the level that the state pension should be and i know we've discussed this in in the past is that actually if the state pension isn't enough don't just have this ratchet mechanism to get it up there. Just just change it to a level that is appropriate or, as you say, provide the right targets to get people who really are in pension of poverty with enough to get them by. Indeed. But, you know, it's we're talking about big sums of money here and it's over £100 billion a year. I mean, it'll be really interesting to see what does happen next from a political point of view. 
the extent to which this government does start trying to look for ways to balance the books on all this kind of stuff. Which brings us nicely onto pension tax reform, which, I mean, to me, still just looks like a, an absolute no-brainer in the current environment. I mean, look, it's always, it's always, ah, oh, it was a problem there. Let's reform pension tax relief. But, I mean, the sums of money involved nets out at around £40 billion a year. So you've got about £20 billion a year of tax revenue coming in on pensions and payment, and you've got around £20 billion a year in national insurance relief. So technically not tax relief, but it's it's effectively a tax relief. And then you've got about £40 billion a year of actual pension tax relief going out. So these are big sums of money. And I just happened to see this morning uh, Paul Johnson, the IFS, writing in the Times. And he was suggesting, look, you know, a big chunk of that tax relief is employer contribution tax relief. And a big chunk of that's going to public sector pension schemes and and in relatively occupational pension schemes, Hoover up the lion's share of the tax relief. It's a relatively small amount going to personal pensions. So his argument was, look, why don't we introduce a bit more flexibility into public sector pension accrual and give people choices? Because you could have done-off situations. He used the example. You might have a nurse who, through her final salary pension or her occupational pension and the state pension, actually ends up on a better standard of living in retirement than she was in work. And that's not necessarily a good outcome. So... So that, there was that that just seemed like an interesting starting point on the pension tax reform. Yeah, and I think this is the the key. I, that is a real risk, particularly in if you continue to get really high levels of inflation with some of the public sector schemes, that people are relatively better off in retirement than they than they are when they're working. And and you know that doesn't seem right. But I think that is the key to the balance with everything. And when you talk about, it's very hard to decouple pension tax relief and the discussion there with the future of auto enrolment because essentially the two kind of completely linked or at least should be completely linked because what what we're really talking about when we look at tax relief is how do we incentivize people to save at the levels that they need to have enough money when they get to retirement now i say obviously that might not be obvious but i think that that's probably where the discussion needs to start around tax relief we're spending all this money but but why are we spending it because to your point tom to begin with the lion's share of that is going on defined benefit pension schemes, of which probably most people would remain in that defined benefit pension scheme, whether they got that tax relief or not. The same, to a certain extent, is true with auto-enrolment, in that the taxpayer is paying an awful lot of money in tax relief into pensions, which people would probably stay in if they got their employer contribution. Now, clearly any change to tax relief is a big deal, but at the moment it seems like a lot of the tax relief is going out to provide supplementation rather than incentivization to save but interested in your thoughts on that one absolutely agree with you and i think it's interesting when you kind of look back over the last dozen years about how we you know if you take a day and the pension changes in 2006 and then how that was severely disrupted by the austerity years of the coalition government and the cuts to the annual allowance and then the cutbacks to the lifetime allowance. So everything changed from 2010 onwards. State pension improvements we've already mentioned, but then also auto-enrolment and then pension freedoms. And so the pension landscape today is massively different from where it was 10 or 15 years ago. The dynamics have just very profoundly changed. And I think probably the two biggest game changers there were auto-enrolment and pension freedom. So it's a given now you're getting people into the pension system. So to your point, I agree, you know, you need to think about what you're incentivizing here. Because we can almost take it for granted people are going to join pensions, particularly if it's a final salary pension. 
And then there's the question about what they do with those pension pots, certainly in a DC world, as they get to the other end, and, and how you create a framework that ensures that that money is used wisely. And we'll come back to that, so I don't want to dwell too much on that aspect now. I absolutely agree with you. I think you know we need to ask questions about, well, why are we spending this £40 billion a year? What are we achieving by it? Can we use that money more effectively? And to your point, yeah, for the auto-enrolment contributions and for DB membership, if they took the tax relief away, I don't suppose many people, certainly with the DB pensions, but also with the auto-enrolment, people wouldn't opt out because they're still getting free money and you know they've bought into that. So I think it's legitimate to ask questions about that. But then as soon as you disappear down the rabbit hole of how you reform pension tax relief, you definitely need to take a ball of string and some supplies for several days because it's a long, it's a, it's a, it's a, it is a rabbit hole, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, this is the problem. Any change is going to be incredibly difficult. So I think you start the pod by asking me about the prevailing mood at the conferences. Well, actually, what's pretty clear is that the Conservative government want to get on with their pro growth agenda. Mm. Now, this may free up some money to be able to to pursue that pro-growth agenda, but it's not going to be anything that happens quickly. And it absolutely shouldn't be anything that happens quickly. You know, this is if you're trying to get big reform to such a crucial part of the the saving infrastructure, it needs to be really well thought through, needs to be carefully considered. So I think what like pension freedom was Indeed, yeah, but it kind, of, it kind of worked, didn't it? So. And also, I guess that was responding to a certain extent to the fact that... They were what? They um, were responding on track to lose the 2015 general election. So it's just like, what can we do? Let's throw some money at people. For sure. I think the difference is that's that was quite a popular change. I'm yeah, not sure. Yeah. And, and, also, and also, the, the whole annuity thing did need reforming at the time. It was just a bit bold. And, mm-hmm. you know, some of the regulatory stuff still still struggling to catch up. We'll come back to one. Okay, I wanted to try a couple of things on you because I think I absolutely agree with your analysis and I think if you're going to start mucking around with pension tax relief it needs to be in a very considered way and I'm conscious of the political clock ticking again look there's another election to be won so we need to do something desperate in a hurry otherwise we're going to be out of power so it's a bit like sort of 2014 all over again the one thing that's just always irked me about pension freedoms not the one thing but a standout is, is is the death benefits which has always just looked bonkers to me you know that we give you all this tax relief we'll let you roll up the money tax-free and then if you don't draw on it well you can just pass the money on tax-free as well that makes no sense to me so how about the government just said use it or lose it right when we're not in the world of letting you wealthy people build up six-figure, seven-figure pots of money and then pass it on to your kids tax-free. That money was tax-relieved to encourage you to, to, to live in retirement. So could you spend it now? Otherwise, we'll tax it on death. Why not do that? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I guess the if you're going to do that, it's the point of at what point do you, does that become taxable? Is it as soon as you go into drawdown? Is it age 75? How would, how would they reform? Mm. I definitely think it's an interesting point to look at. I'm actually probably more interested in that from a how it would change the patterns of retirement behaviour than necessarily the amount of money that it, it raises for the exchequer, actually, because I actually think just broadly with, well, what some have called the death of annuities, I think a lot of that stems from two things, really. It's the the really valuable death benefits if you're in drawdown, mm. i.e. that carrot of you can just leave this sum to your family in the event of your death, which is attractive. And then also... At the same time, you had guilt yields falling significantly sort of before pension freedom. But yeah. I think you've kind of got these these two 
sort of headwinds of you know really generous death benefits plus annuity rates having historically not been very healthy and actually what that's done is this you've seen a shift in retirement behavior to what we have now now people say drawdowns the new normal i slightly disagree i think cashing in your pension <laughs> yes. and not having a pension is the new normal which is really the kind of the elephant in the room which kind of needs to be addressed but i do think that your point around those the generosity of the death benefits is interesting not just from the tax that you may recover or encourage because people would spend rather than keep it in their pension but actually more so from the um from how it shifts retirement behavior i guess the other thing that's interesting around that is if you get when we sort of see the final detail of sort of social care reform hmm. yeah potentially what that looks like because at the moment again i think well, i think lots of people who have the ability to keep money in their pension are probably slightly wary of gifting any money away earlier on in their life because yeah. of the risk of, of what their care bills might be when they they get to their sort of final years but because they don't have that confidence it'd be interesting to see if that if that changes any behavior sort of moving forward yeah i I definitely agree at the moment there's an element of quite logically and prudently people hoarding capital against that very later life eventuality and whether that's their housing wealth or or their pension pots you know you'd be kind of crazy just to to, to blow it all unless you haven't got much to start with and you just know you've got to throw yourself on the mercy of the state if you've got a choice you'd probably want to hang on to some of that cash wouldn't you you make a good point that so i mean and just another one that's interested me and i think the timing of this is quite ironic is the 20 to 1 calculation on defined benefits pension incomes which has always been laughably generous towards the defined benefit pensions because you're effectively giving them a, a much higher lifetime allowance than would be appropriate for a dc pot of money but actually now with the high in, increasing interest rates, the, the 20 to 1 calculation is starting to look a bit more logical than would have been the case for the last 10 years or so. It did just occur to me, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be hard for the government just to tweak that dial a little bit and say, oh, okay, now defined benefit pensions, we'll, we'll value them on a 25 to 1 basis for the lifetime allowance or something like that. You're right. There's definitely... Uh... There's definitely an argument to look at it. I'm, I'm not. I'm not holding my breath for any for any outcome on that one. If I'm honest, yeah. yeah. Any, any other thoughts on the pension tax stuff before we move on? No, not really on the funding of tax relief. I mean, I guess the only other thing, the way that we think about it, is as I say, more from an incentivisation lens. Mm. And this is why I don't think you can decouple any discussion around tax relief from what's going on in the auto enrolment world, because there's groups within the sort of pension industry that are calling for contribution rates to rise, minimum contribution rates to rise to 12%. We did some analysis earlier in a year using us, the savings and resilience. That's, that's, that's we Hargreaves Lansdowne, yes. That is we Hargreaves Lansdowne. Yeah. Very good piece of work uh, it was too. Well, thank you. And this, yeah, this piece of work just looked at the impact of not only the auto-enrolment changes that you're that we're expecting to come through by the mid-2020s, so the first pound of earnings and the, the age 18 enrolment, but also looked at if you went to 12% contributions uh, equally split between employee and employer. And actually, it looks at the impact not just on your financial resilience for the long term, so your pension, the likelihood of you having a, a successful retirement because your pension savings are high, but also looks at the impact on the short-term measures, so your surplus income, your cash savings, your ability to build other assets, which is really important, obviously, if you're looking to to go and buy your first home. So because it has a detrimental effect on your short-term resilience, we're not really certain that 
uh, move to a higher rate of contribution is going to be right for everyone. Certainly lower income households really look to be struggling if you if you ramp up the auto-enrolment contributions much higher. So one of the things that we called for in this piece of work was actually for the government to do more research into the, the impact of offering employer matching contributions. So some work that we've done at Hargreaves Lansdowne, and I'm going back sort of two or three years mm. here, found that through offering an employer matching contribution, so if you pay an extra 1% into your pension, your employer will match that. Employers that offered that structure, they could increase the voluntary paying of further contributions from their staff by around 60%. So we just think that is a really great opportunity to look at the impact there because there's some things that you could do in the short term if you could encourage employers to kind of, more employers to offer that kind of structure. But also there may be opportunities to kind of roll that out as the next phase of auto-enrolment to say that employers have to offer a matching contribution on structure on top, but they don't necessarily need to enrol you automatically at a higher level. And then what that does, it gives choice to individuals to say, okay, I don't want to opt out of my pension altogether, but actually I don't necessarily want to pay in anymore because I've got yeah. other priorities, but it's there in the background, should I I need to? So again, I think if you look at tax relief in isolation and you don't look at how people are incentivized to save, you kind of don't really get the full picture when you come to auto-enrolment as well. And, and that's, that matching narrative also helps build a bridge from the, the passivity of auto-enrolment through towards the kind of decision making that increasingly becomes important as people progress through life so it's all built around an element of of engagement of employers coming to their staff and saying that make a choice here you know this to some extent is your money and it's on you so you're in the pension now what do you want to do next exactly and i think when auto enrollment was sort of going sort of being implemented so i worked with lots of employers at the time to help them kind of implement their approach and, and i you know, at the time, and obviously also you know, it's been a, a roaring success, but I remember employers broadly having a view of, we're more than happy to pay contributions for staff that really value this as a benefit. But what we don't really want to be doing is paying out money for staff who don't really even understand or not even aware that they're in a pension scheme. And that, again, this helps drive the connection so that if people sort of say, look, actually, I, I want to pay more because I, I want to put my own money to this. And I get that you're going to increase and help me do that i just think it has a really it has a, it has a great value impact for the employer as well as 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 you say just just generally driving high levels of engagement and understanding so yeah i think there's a lot to like about that kind of approach yeah, yeah. my first proper job someone put me in a final salary pension and i didn't even realize so <laughs> it's like but a year later oh that's good isn't it i'm glad they did that Thank you for that. <laughs> so uh, that was a few years ago. Now. Showing your age there, Tom. <laughs> so, and and then there's the whole retirement piece and all the craziness of the last few weeks on the market and what that's done. I mean, okay, so so guilt yields were rising anyway. So it's not just a sudden thing. In fact, bond yields around the world have been rising. But I'm kind of interested in how that's impacted on on default funds and on de-risking arrangements and you've got much better access to this kind of data than I have these days but I did look at a guilt fund that was down about 25% over the last year I thought well, that's that's not great I wondered if you had any kind of thoughts around that yeah I think just generally this is really this is really interesting again from your from that earlier discussion around engagement and sort of mm -hmm. getting interest so if you look at the actual growth phase 
of pensions. So the kind of the meaty defaults that are trying to grow your money, probably sort of before the age of 50, maybe slightly after, depending on your pension scheme. They've fallen year to date. They're down about 12%. But broadly, in the grand scheme of things, they're still up around, on average, around 15% over five years. Now, clearly, there are variations between different providers. But if you look at kind of the average, that's that's broadly what you're coming at, out at. So still, over the longer term, you're getting growth on your money, despite you know, a relatively large fall this year. I guess the interesting thing with default funds, then, is how have you onboarded your new workplace pension member to be able to cope with this so we know because we hardly answer no because we've been um, measuring this on a regular basis we do this six monthly we take a survey of the general population to understand how many people with a workplace pension actually understand that it's invested and it's consistently only about one in three people that even understand that their pension's invested So you then have this slight issue that when you see a big stock market fall, if people don't know their money's invested and they then go and check their pension statement, even though because of the the way these funds are diversified, they're doing, you know, relatively good job over five, over over a longer term period. And there's good reasons why they'll have fallen this year. That's still going to be quite shocking to someone who doesn't actually understand their money's invested anyway. So that's, Mm. I guess, the a starter for this we also have the risk that you at the moment i think this is just you know terrible timing unfortunately we have the pension attention campaign that's going on at present which does have a risk and i know sort of the people involved in sort of designing this were, were mindful of the fact that you could have a situation where people are checking and and they might not understand so again i don't think that's a reason not to go ahead with that campaign and to try and help people understand but it's really important for pension providers that are directing their members to go and find out more about their pension, that they can really easily explain that their money's invested and what this means and why a short-term drop in the value of the pension fund isn't the end of the world. In fact, it's probably a good opportunity if you're a bit, a bit younger. Yeah. So that's kind of the, yeah, the default funds themselves. But I'm actually, I'm actually kind of more concerned with these, these de-risking strategies and in particular, almost the old style de-risking strategies. So the, those that would kind of leave you, as you say, 100% invested in gilts, ready to, to buy an annuity. And the problem is that when I sort of looked at this earlier on, on average, they've fallen about 38% this year. So you've got a big drop in value there. And that's supposedly, and I'm sure... Clients that is that. going to be quite upsetting if you thought you'd really be put upsetting. somewhere safe, right? Really and you're, and you're, by definition, you're about to retire. Yeah, exactly. So I think this is kind of offset because of the rise in guilt yields if you went to buy an annuity. Not not fully, but it's kind of offset. But if you haven't, if that's not the plan and you want to go into drawdown, then you, know, you are going to see a big chunk. And that emotionally is going to be quite difficult to, yeah. to deal with. Now, your options really are to potentially limp through retirement taking less than you would have done previously or you have to wait and work longer and ride it out but neither of those is particularly palatable so absolutely so i think this is going to be you know a time when the industry really needs to help people who are in this position particularly in these sort of more traditional or i guess old, older style de-risking approaches which which are leaving people probably a little bit exposed at the moment and given that what around I don't know, 5% of pension pots that are accessed actually go into an annuity. I mean, like you said earlier, it's a big chunk, hundreds of thousands that just go out as cash, small pots predominantly, mostly under sort of 30,000, 50,000, so a lot of them under 10,000. 
big slice to go into drawdown arrangements. Okay, so your fund value's fallen. Then arguably, if if you're going into drawdown, what were you doing in gilts anyway? You know that that arguably that shouldn't have happened. So for the few tens of thousands of people who still buy an annuity every year, some of whom will have a gar, as as you pointed out to me in a previous conversation. But those annuity rates are up, what, about 50% on where they were three years ago? So there's some compensating offset there, but it's still it's still not a good picture, is it? No, absolutely not. I mean, yeah, so since the start of the year, you've got annuity rates up 45%. So that is really, you know, that is hugely attractive. It makes them a much more viable option. Mm-hmm. I think actually the thing with these buying patterns at the moment so we, I, we talked slightly about this after pension freedom the death benefits but i think everyone looks at pension freedom and assumes that that's the catalyst for the retirement decisions we see now i, I actually think a lot of this is because of annuity rates being essentially artificially low because of quantitative easing now you'll recall tom that you and i did a piece of work when you were still with hargreaves i seem to remember the magic number was around seven percent wasn't it uh nearly six and a half percent but yeah that was the we wanted to understand what the appetite to come back and buy annuities was and it sort of came out around about that level so we're above that level now and so what is really interesting to me is to see how does this start to shift retirement trends because i I still believe, and I think there's plenty of research from other firms that have done looked at this, that people do kind of want certainty. Yes. They definitely want it on certain parts of their income. They just didn't want it at any price. And I think that what we see in terms of behaviour now is going to be really, really interesting. So, for example, in the last three months, so three months to September, we saw 18,000 annuity quotes delivered by Hargreaves Lansdowne. That's an increase of 70% on wow. the same period the year before. So there's definitely an increase in those numbers of people looking to get annuity quotes. And that doesn't mean that they'll necessarily jump to do that now, but people are... But they're looking in that direction, right? Yeah, Absolutely. But quite frankly, that's exactly what they should be doing. It doesn't mean that now is the time to go and buy an annuity. It's always a good time to buy an annuity. That's what (laughs) Nigel Callahan always used to say, wasn't it? (laughs) I just think we've got a really great opportunity now to be making sure that there's the message going out to clients. If you're in drawdown, your decision-making could be fundamentally different because of this change in annuities. And for me, the thing that's probably most poorly understood in all of this is that you can do a mix and match approach, so that you can buy your pension to buy tranches of annuity. And actually, I think that's, for me, that's something which would be a really sensible thing for the industry as a whole to talk to to people around at at this point in time, because none of us can, in the current environment, say, annuity rates might not go higher they could do but at the same time what we know is that they're at a kind of 14 year high and so it would be interesting to get a quote it might be interesting to kind of buy a tranche of annuity now to kind mm. of de-risk your position and take 10 percent of your thought, drawdown fund or whatever and yeah 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 and certainly to explore that as an option so i just kind of think about it as the reverse if i was given what might a pension be if you've got a full savings history so £200,000 maybe when you get to retirement if you got given £200,000 in cash you probably wouldn't stick that into the stock market on one day you'd probably drip feed that over a period of time because you would be mindful that there could be big fluctuations in the market well the same is really true of annuity rates here right I actually think if you got to the end of your working life and used all of your accrued monies to buy an annuity in one go with everything, that's actually an incredibly high risk transaction. Bold move, you, yeah, yeah. You just don't know what the future is going to hold. You're 
at 65, you could be sort of looking at 20, 25, 30 years of my income having to be paid in exactly the same format, and I've got no idea what the future is going to hold. It's funny when you say that, because that's what we used to do, wasn't it? That was it. You got your DC pot, and when you got to retirement, you just flipped the whole lot over into an annuity in one go. That's what people did. Absolutely, yeah. So it is different now. But I also think that I remember when I used to advise clients on this, and you talk to people who, you know, for whom a drawdown might be quite comfortable often you would get pushback when annuity rates were at this kind of level they would push back and say i hear all the attractions of drawdown but i don't really want to worry about what the stock market's doing on a daily basis as i go into retirement so again i just think that generally speaking people do want some sort of certainty they don't want it at any price and actually because you've got the ability to buy tranches of annuity and not go for an all or nothing approach I just think that balance between flexibility and, and security, that has to be attractive to a lot of people, particularly in the current circumstances. Okay, that'll make sense. I'll, I want to finish with a couple of thoughts around regulatory issues. So Sarah Pritchard's flagged that they're going to do a holistic review of the advice guidance boundary, whatever that means. This is, <laughs> this is not usual FCA territory. But So just taking your last point... Under the current regulatory framework, how easy is it for HL to write to all its direct customers and say, hey, Nathan, you're in a drawdown. Have you thought about maybe buying a slice of annuity right now? Look at these lovely rates. Would you like to buy one? I mean, and the reason I ask that is I think there's a lot of good stuff that happens at the transition point from work into retirement. About a third of people take advice. They get pension-wise. They make some choices. But just as important is the ongoing support people get once they are in retirement, and, and unless they've just cashed everything out and bought an annuity already. But particularly if you're in drawdown, you know you, you, it's not a fire and forget strategy. So the role that Hargreaves has to play in supporting their customers with guidance and information is critical in all of this. So yeah, that. I mean, look, one of the key things that we have from a, a drawdown perspective is we do have a principle that we think clients who are in drawdown should be reviewing that on an ongoing basis, and one of that one of the points of that review is to get an annuity quote at least annually so that you can continue as a as a drawdown investor to be comfortable in the decision that you've made. I mean, even if you've got no interest in buying an annuity at that point, you need to kind of understand how the market is positioned so that you can be comfortable that your choice remains the right choice. So I think that absolutely is fundamental when you're going into drawdown is to either go in and have advice and have an advisor work with you for the entirety of your retirement or to be comfortable in reviewing it on an ongoing basis. I think I think that's incredibly important. I think when you talk about the opportunities for improved guidance in this space, I think that, yeah, there's definitely opportunities. So the issue is not necessarily that you can't write to people, but you can only really write to people in a very generic way. And the issue is if you're being written to in a very generic way or being nudged into a very generic way, the information is might not appear that relevant to you. It now, just looks a, like marketing guff, right? Absolutely. Now, there is a difference then in how we join the dots. So it's not going and saying, this is the best thing for you to do. But it is about saying, because you look a little bit like this, we think it might be worthwhile that you read up on this. And this is why we think this is the case. So if you take, for example, annuity rises at the moment, we can write out to people and say, annuity rates are up. But what we can't do is say, because we know you're in drawdown, because you're sat in cash in drawdown, you know, you may be more conservative in your outlook. 
annuity rates are up at, at this around, it's worth getting a quote. So mm. it's that kind of, as soon as you layer on levels of personalization, which help to make someone realize that actually we, we are trying to help them because, you know, they're in a slightly different position to other clients, then that's when you kind of cause the issue. So it's the personalization and then giving the information that's more of the problem rather than, being able to write out some of these messages, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely makes sense. And that's the kind of stuff you guys are going to be engaging with the FCA on as they do this holistic review of the advice guidance boundary, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing for me that's really interesting here is that there is an element of, you know, obviously Hargreaves Lansdowne has a number of these issues that we think a, sh- a shift in the regime might might help us to better communicate with our clients and help improve that decision-making process. But, you know, it's not just Hargreaves Lansdowne who are, are interested in this space. I mean, multiple providers will have areas that they want to help clients and currently can't. Bear in mind, providers hold a lot of data about clients so can spot things that, that might they might, might be able to sort of nudge. Ah, into, coming full circle back to the AI stuff you were talking about at the beginning of this call. About yeah, using data so, well, yeah? Absolutely. But I think the use of data here is, okay, you know, providers have the ability to use this or have the potential to use this data, but probably not the ability because of where the rules stop. But also, and this will be interesting to see, the appetite from the regulator here who want to be a data-led regulator, but how can they collect data from firms so they almost see these nudges, this advice guidance boundary in real time, and if there are issues, they're flagged and you can kind of supervise in real time rather than waiting for sort of after-the-event observations. We should probably mention British Steel at this point, yeah. (laughs) So I guess this this is kind of, for me, what's interesting. If, If... and I think this is where the industry needs to have a really kind of clear position, because if we do have data and we do want to be able to use that to improve clients' decision-making and point out where they might be able to get either. And, and it's interesting for us, the way that we're thinking about this is, okay, there's stuff that we can do to help clients on the guidance side, but there's times when we might look at someone and say, look, actually, maybe now is the time that we, advice might be more appropriate for you. And if we can identify those instances then we might be able to sort of help and point people to advice when we think that that might be the better route for them. So there's there's just so much opportunity to help people to improve their decision-making based on what we're seeing from the data that at the moment just doesn't happen. And I think for me, the biggest opportunity here is not just the, the stuff that we can't do today, it's the fact that actually innovation is just completely held back. And that's one of the things that you'll know, Tom, is that's what we're, the industry's kind of bemoaned for around pension freedom it's that there's no innovation there's no no, nothing's happening well actually that's because actually we've got pretty good products already drawdown and annuities are are good products i I fully expect that we'll see annuities improve in terms of their their uptake in the in the years ahead if we have guilt yields and annuity rates at the level we, we sort of see at the moment but basically if you've if you've got the position where you've got the products already then where the innovation needs to happen is in information delivery and at the moment, if the information delivery is somewhat held back by where the advice guidance boundary is, almost you haven't even got firms being able to think about the opportunity that could exist because they they just know that they're not able to do this. So I just I do think that there's kind of opportunities really here to to really improve the value that clients get out of their their financial service products based on the interactions that they could have in the future. It's really interesting. Okay, final thing I wanted to touch on was just something I saw at the end of last week about 
The FCA reportedly suggesting that consumer duty could impose an obligation on intermediated platforms and providers to develop a direct consumer service for their orphan clients. So if someone's been brought in by a product provider via an IFA and then for whatever reason that, that relationship breaks down that well, you need to service the customer directly and you need to do a decent job of that. And that's not always easy to do. And in occasions in the past, Hargreaves has actually ended up taking on orphan clients from asset managers and the like who've ended up with books of business. So I wondered if you had any thoughts around that. Is this is this kind of open season for Hargreaves Lansdowne again? Well, I did see that article uh, that you refer to by virtue of your, as you describe it, smoking hot Twitter feed. Um <laughs> But for me, my head jumped instantly to how would this work? How would an advised platform do this? And why, in what instances would you have to pick up that orphan client? And and at what point do they become orphaned? And how does that all work? Because also you've got, I mean, the obvious thing for me is you look at this and you say, well, if I am a someone who's taken advice and I've been advised on a portfolio, maybe that portfolio automatically rebalances because of the advised service that I have. If all of a sudden I'm not being serviced, what happens? Do you just take that person out of that investment strategy and put them into your own D2C investment strategy? That just looks to me very advice-like and I don't really understand how you could make that justification and how that would even work in practice so i think some of the criticisms in the in the article were that how do you practically do this and are you kind of lumping a lot of extra pressure on the advised firms to deliver this kind of service i mean quite frankly if you if you think it through in in those terms having to offer a a d2c proposition and quite how much would be necessary under the consumer duty there is is probably i guess the important thing to to think through that's going to be quite expensive. It's going to be quite hard. And yeah, I, I was genuinely, I was quite surprised because that does seem to me to be an awful lot of work for providers to have to put in place to deliver that kind of service. So it's, I, I suppose the issue is really, and it's always the case, isn't it? The devil's in the detail, hmm. depending on quite how, to what extent they would have to comply with consumer duty requirements in terms of driving information delivery when you haven't naturally got that relationship like the advisor would have is... It's quite interesting. Yeah, I looking down the telescope from the FCA's end, it kind of, it kind of made sense to me. You know, you've got this customer. This customer needs a service, so you need people who are trained to talk directly to your customer. You need maybe an app. You need to be able to look after that customer in the manner to which they might reasonably expect. And you know, this isn't necessarily you having to give them advice because that was never the deal. But they do have a product with you and they do you do provide them with a service. So you need all the kind of supporting customer services information and functionality to honor that obligation to the customer. And in theory, that's that's kind of always existed, but in practice it's been fine for intermediated clients to not get that service from their product provider for the product providers to say, no, well, we just don't do that. But I kind of I buy the argument that under consumer duty, that that may just may not be acceptable anymore. Yeah, that's that's really interesting actually to think about. In those, I mean, I mean, there is an element whereby having a level of consumer action, interaction is it's, it's kind of a hygiene factor. It's not a nice, you know, it shouldn't be a, a really great sort of cherry on top. But I mean, there's an element where we you just need that anyway, right? Mm. I mean, you can't rely on completely on the advisor. I would have thought there, but then. 
and this is kind of more your firm's world than than mine, Tom. But but how do advisors start to choose their platform? Do they is there an element of due diligence around the the consumer interaction that needs to come into play? Probably not, because they're not. Especially when you take on a client, you don't expect them to become an orphan client. You expect to have a relationship with them for the the entirety. So it's yeah, it does. There are platforms out there that are just you know they are. They're intermediated platforms. Their their whole business is built around serving a financial advisor. If all of a sudden that financial advisor isn't there and there's a customer, lonely customer standing out there in the rain, knocking on the door saying, can I I talk to somebody, please? (laughs) I can see that's going to get interesting. Mm. So Anyway, I think the FCA is still trying to work out exactly what good consumer duty looks like. I think it's a bit of a work in progress for everybody. So, but perhaps one to come back to. Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's a big shift though. I mean, to an outcomes-based... regulation it's really positive but i think there's no doubt that we're we're going to see this evolve as as firms get to grips with exactly what it means to them and how they think through through client outcomes and how they're delivering in the interests of consumers sort of in a in a strategic and sort of almost working towards a proper framework rather than it just being that's what we do as a business so yeah interesting well that seems a good note to finish on looking after the consumer nathan thank you very much for talking to me today pleasure good to speak to you tom Thanks for listening. If you like the show, do please subscribe and leave positive ratings and reviews, as this will undoubtedly help make the world a better place. Thank you.